Hi, I'm Kenneth, and this is the Unspeakable Vice podcast, where we talk about talking about sex. Sex is a dirty word, a taboo, something that just isn't talked about. We're about to dig into why. Now, recently, I had the privilege and the pleasure of speaking with Sergio Barrera, a graduate student in American culture at the University of Michigan. So my name is Sergio Barrera. Um, I am a doctoral candidate in the Department of American Culture, um, where I do a lot of work with like masculinity studies and fraternity studies, but I'm also um, do it through a lens of you know, anthropological, ethnographic approach. Sergio's interested in masculinities or what it means to be a man. And he is a man, so of course he has personal experience with that. Um, but beyond that, he's informed by his involvement as a leader in a fraternity and by his family background. How do I write myself in the narrative and find value in my own experience um, as a man who migrated from the southern border to the northern border, right? So I'm from Texas, um, the Texas-Mexico borderlands. I did my undergrad here. Um, and my master's here in, in interdisciplinary studies. I focused in Latino studies a lot with like gender sexuality. Um, so my work has been revolving around these topics of culture, identity, race, ethnicity, privilege, and all these other things. So far, when I've talked about sex, sexuality, gender, and so on, I've been kind of vague. I sort of lump all these terms together. Um, I think it makes sense to do so because they're all related in a way, particularly when we have a hard time talking about them openly and honestly because of our strongly held beliefs, our prejudices, and our fears. But if we're going to study these topics from a scientific, academic perspective, we should be clear on what they mean. Um, I think full disclosure is the more I learn about these things, the more I complicate them. So whatever definition I tell you about them right now, is going to be likely shaped by our cultural and social norms as they evolve. Um, but the way in which I see sex um, and the way in which I've studied is, is uh, sex is also a spectrum. A lot, of it, a lot of people believe that sex is biological. So it goes more on the genetics, right? So the XY chromosome or, you know, and determines whether you're a female or a male. But there's also been research that shows that there's folks who are intersex and sometimes they don't fall in the binary of um, what is female, male, right? Um, and you've had this for over, I mean, many centuries, it's, it's been known that there's folks that are intersex. Um, so the, when I refer to sex, I, I, I mean, I'm, I use it for a sort of binary approach because I work with men, male identifying men, you know, um, or men identifying males in that sense. Right. So I don't work with trans folks. I don't work with, um, you know, maybe women who might identify with masculinity. My entire research is on men and masculinity and males in that sense, right? So the way in which I see it in my research is more of this idea, but the way in which I understand sex is more complicated than what I actually write about, if that makes sense. When it comes to gender, I think of what is performed, right? So I, I think mainly on Judith Butler as a feminist. Judith Butler is an influential theorist in the areas of feminism, gender, and queer theory. Perhaps most importantly, she's credited with the development of the idea of gender performativity. In brief, this is the idea that gender is a performance that each of us contribute to. But more than that, gender 
that is male and female and everything else does not exist outside the ways in which it's performed. So she's not saying that individuals choose to perform male or female, but that the ways in which individuals perform creates our understanding of what male or female is. And thinking about how she said that gender is a construction, right? So we are a product of our social environment, of our economic um, mobility or no or lack of, right? So all of these things really have to play in the way in which we perceive what it means to be a man or what it means to be a woman, but also how we enact those. And I believe that the more mobility you have, the more freedom you have to, to move between the parameters of gender. Um, but then other people, you know, just choose not to. And that's also fine because, again, um, gender is perceived from the moment we step out of the door, right? So how are we walking? How are we dressing? Um, and it's all really a performance. Um, when I think of sexuality, there are various components um, because my understanding of sexuality is, again, very broad. I don't really focus on the aspect of sexuality a lot um, because my thing is um, sexuality could influence how we perform gender, but it is not in correlation to it, right? So for example, um, when I moved to Michigan, I was told that I was straight passing. Um, and as a queer male, male, you know, a queer man, I'm like, well, how does one perform straightness or how does one perform gayness? To me, it didn't fit to the idea that I needed to ascribe to maybe a more feminine aesthetic or a more feminine demeanor or a more feminine um, sounding. You know, there, there are all these catalogs that I just did not feel trapped in because Later on, I understood. I mean, I'm a socialization. Obviously, I come from Texas and Mexican family. So my conservative nature did not allow me to maybe explore and or dabble in femininity as much as other folks. But I was being outcasted within the own queer community. So when I think of sexuality, I think of the component of who you choose to engage romantically with and also who you might engage um, sexually with. And obviously, um, I, I mean, I don't question things. I believe that people are going to share whatever it is that they want to share. But I do believe that some men are like, well, I am a straight male who enjoys in the pleasure uh, with other men, you know? And I don't think that um, I would call them bisexual or questioning or any of these things because uh, a lot of these terms are arbitrary and we get to impose those, those on ourselves, right? So because I grew up in a certain atmosphere and then I left and then people were telling me, no, you're this, you're this. It just didn't sit well with me that if I have more knowledge about a term that I would put people in boxes that maybe they don't want to associate themselves with. This is really interesting. Even academics who spend careers trying to define words sometimes say that those definitions can be arbitrary. If we can't even agree on what it means to be gay, for example, how can we possibly talk about it? I think this kind of issue is exactly what makes it clear that we need to talk more about these things. We need to develop a common language, a common understanding of terms we use to talk about sex, gender, sexuality, sexual identity, and sexual orientation, so that we can actually have honest conversations. If a man says he's not gay and he likes to have sex with men, 
We all need to know why and how that is not a contradiction if we're ever to get a point of understanding. Hearing Sergio speak about his experience of rejection by the queer community when he came to Ann Arbor makes me think about my own experience. Uh, having grown up in and around Ann Arbor, uh, I can't say I was rejected by the queer community because I didn't even know it existed. Um, I guess I, I, I must have been straight passing to the point that I didn't even recognize an alternative. And maybe I was never invited to those alternative queer communities because I was so straight passing that nobody even thought to invite me in. So I didn't even know what my options were. I didn't know that there might be communities where I could feel more at home, but I just felt like I was different, that I didn't fit in. I mean, I think as somebody who, who studies gender and sexuality, right? Like, and, and I think study more of like, I do a lot of self-reflection and I try to learn from other people and see, well, how do I fit and don't fit? And maybe in the sites that I don't fit, find comfort in not fitting, um, right? Like that's my biggest thing because a lot of the time I think we grow up wanting to feel identified, but it might be 30 years or 40 years before we find an identification point. So it's very important to just be okay with being uncomfortable and with being like, hey, well, I don't fit in here and that's fine because it's not for somebody else to get me, it's for me to get me, right? And I think that once you develop an agenda of self-preservation, um, self-awareness and self-care, like you're on the best path to becoming the best human being possible. That's what I believe in. Um, when it comes to, to the idea of communicating, I feel it's very difficult because I have read so many books and sat through so many lectures. So my way of thinking could sometimes be very elevated when it comes to speaking to folks in my community that maybe have never taken a gender studies class or maybe have never even set foot in an institution, like in a university. And I tell you this because in my home, it's always the struggle between me being, you know, a possible doctor in, you know, who specializes in gender versus my mom and my dad who have a more conservative background, who are Catholic by, you know, by practice, by, by choice, by faith, by raising, um, they're, they're sort of uh, acting upon each other because their level of education versus my education are both very different ways in which we're processing this, right? So what I have had to do is how can I make the knowledge that I have gained at the university accessible for others that might not understand this language fully? And I think that that's the biggest challenge that academics face because um, a lot of us in the academy are in this bubble that all this language is language that everybody gets. And a lot of these phrases that are jam-packed are thrown, right? For example, race is one of those, like race is thrown a lot, but do we really understand the concept of race and the history of race? A lot of folks do not. They understand a more, um, a, a pop cultural reference, which has a lot of ties to it, but the complexities of, of these phenomenons are very large and to me, and, and even myself, I don't consider myself an expert in gender or in sexuality because there's always something that I haven't learned or haven't read, right? Um, but what I try to do is, how can I make theory practical? And I think that this is something that I learned when I was a graduate student. 
um, um, I took a class in which we were talking about you know, decolonizing and decolonizing and this word kept coming up and I'm like, what the hell is decolonizing, right? I didn't, but I didn't understand it because I didn't understand what was the colonization that we needed to decolonize from. So I needed to do a backwards approach. I was learning all of these things of what we should undo, but never understood what needed to be undone. I love this idea that Sergio brings up about being uncomfortable. He says it's okay not to fit in. It's okay to be uncomfortable. Um, it might not be pleasant or fun, but it's okay. And beyond that, even there are benefits to being uncomfortable. Pushing outside our comfort zone is how we learn and grow. It was just a coincidence that as I was talking to Sergio, I was wearing this shirt with the phrase, get comfortable being uncomfortable. The guy that sold it to me was an athlete. So from that perspective, getting uncomfortable, pushing outside your comfort zone means to push yourself physically. When you make your muscles uncomfortable, that's when you start building a new level of strength or flexibility or control that lets you do new things. That's how you grow. But it has another meaning too. The same athlete is also a survivor of childhood sexual abuse. And since then, he's gotten really good at getting comfortable being uncomfortable on a psychological level. Uh, he's speaking about his pain and the challenges they've created for him. And he's speaking out against the forces that might keep victims from speaking out on their own behalf. He's trying to make it easier to talk about sex. So when I was younger, I don't think I was very comfortable being uncomfortable. I was uncomfortable all the time, but I thought it meant there was something wrong that I needed to fix. And I did some pretty stupid and harmful things trying to fix it. Now, I'm a lot more comfortable today, and those same discomforts are still there, but, well, more or less, but I've found enough confidence in myself that I'm okay with that when I'm socially uncomfortable in a particular situation. And I'm using those situations as opportunities to grow. I asked Sergio about barriers to honest communication. I realized that what we were talking about was not just being honest with others, but also with ourselves. And uh, his response is as relevant to me personally as it is to these ideas in general. The first thing is that a lot of folks are, are scared of challenging what has been passed down to them. We believe that this sort of intergenerational understanding of life um, should be unquestioned or should be not, um, like we shouldn't think critically about this because I might be shunned away from the community or I might be outcasted or I might be this, right? And, and we sort of perpetuate those patterns by not challenging the patterns or even just questioning why, right? Like, why do I do this? Why do I think that? Why do you think like this, right? And I think that once you get the confidence to ask why, um, then things become a little bit more clear. Um, I'm a very anxious person. Like I have OCD, I have high levels of anxiety, I am an overcrit like thinker. Um, so I, again, I use that to my advantage. I'm like, okay, how has fear permeated culture and society to create a barrier for us to think freely or to speak freely or to question freely? And I am not rooted or I don't let fear rule my life, especially when I'm trying to learn. Because what happens is if you let fear rule you from that, you're always going to be held back. Um, and again, another thing that I learned in grad school is 
if you're don't feel if you don't feel uncomfortable about something then you're not learning something new right and i think that that is true about everything if you're doing something that is so normal to you then you're not expanding the sight of anything um so that is a thing as a male well we grow up saying no don't say this no you can't express your feelings no you are more of the outside than the inside no more you know so there's all these factors that come into play when men have to just try to have a conversation because we feel the need to perform toughness, to perform um, stability, to perform emotional maturity, even if a lot of us are carrying cultural baggage or emotional baggage of when we were children. Um, and there's this book that I just ordered that's called um, the Peter Pan syndrome, and I forget. I the book he's like talking Gary about is the Peter Pan syndrome, men who have never grown up by Dr. Dan Kiley. But basically the claim of the book, and I haven't read it, but the claim of the book is how there's this idea that men um, mature slower than women, but we don't understand the cultural components. Why? Because women, since they're young girls, they're always asked about how they are. If something hurts, they express it. And it's always tender and care. So they start progressing their emotional maturity at a much younger age to where they can identify things that hurt them, things that cause them pain, things that make them happy, that make them cry. Versus boys, we're almost shoved to the playground and are told to be physical and are told to be aggressive. And there's really no sense of communication or expression when it comes to boys versus girls. So a lot of the emotional maturity um, has to do with how we're treated as children. Right. And, and sometimes it's like, well, I'm just trying to, you know, prepare my son for the world. But the thing is, you prepare him by making him a good being, not by, you know, ascribing him to this is what a man should be like. Like, think, OK, this is not how a man or a woman should behave, but how should just a, 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 a human being behave? Right. And I think that when you start thinking about these things, then you start thinking more on the feminine side in regards to care and love and nurture and all these other things that we wish we could incorporate, but that we're so shy away from because we feel like that's the unreachable. That's a woman's thing. That's not a man's thing. Right. So for me, I've navigated a lot of these barriers again, psychologically, emotionally, culturally, socially, and even things that I cannot control such as my body and my gender or my sex. So I hope that helps. Fascinating, isn't it? We're all talking about sex, masculinity, and gender, but look at all the other things that come up. Religion, race, culture, psychology, emotions, how we raise our children. To me, anyway, what's amazing is that we've taken something as foundational to the human condition as sex, and we've tried to somehow excise it from all these other conversations where it's actually directly related. In polite society, there's a lot we can talk about, but we manage to keep dodging around the one part of all these topics and that pretend we don't need sex as part of it, that we can just ignore it, that it's just a small, inconsequential part of our social experience. But it's not. Sex is with us from the moment we're born, from the first steps we take, from the first outfit we wear. It's with us in our homes, in our churches, in every relationship we have. Maybe we should stop ignoring it. I think that a question that we should be asking is, the first thing is, why do I behave the way that I do? When you tackle the why 
And I think that rather than questioning the out, question the in. Why do I think about this like this? Why do I behave like this? Why do I respond like this? Why am I emotionally attracted to this and not this? Why do I put an emphasis on this and not this? Start questioning your own beliefs and your own system because you're gonna learn in this questioning that it is learned behavior. I find this acceptable because at one point, my father expressed that it was. I find this um, tolerable because at one time, my group of friends said that it was. I find, so it all starts relating to these pinpoints as to who were the ones that influenced us and, and shaped our worldviews. And sometimes that is destructive behavior and sometimes that's great behavior, but it always stems from something. Who are our model heroes? Right. If you ask a, a child, who is your hero? And he tells you this very hyper masculine figure. Maybe he's a cartoon. Maybe he is, you know, a firefighter. Then you're going to already start knowing. This is how his concept of gender. This is his concept of um, performativity of masculinity. If you find a boy who might say my superhero, because I'm saying that like superhero or role model without a gender might be a woman then maybe they're, they're attracted to the nurturing side, to the loving side, right? And that is, if hopefully nobody shames them, that is a life that they will be leading, right? So I think that a lot of it comes from questioning our own actions. And then if we find that they're problematic, question how can we address these, right? Because it, does, it doesn't stop just with reflecting, but then reflecting on how I can enact and change or how I can be, an, uh, how I can, you know, uh, how I can have the will to change, right? Um, which is really important because it is very, very common for us to follow our father's footsteps because that is the right thing to do because that is the only fatherhood or male role models that we know to be. But how do we learn from other ones and how do we, we maybe bridge them and, and create a new amalgamation of what your sense of manhood means, right? Um, I write a lot about fathering, especially on the border, because my dad was deported a couple of years ago and before that he lived in Mexico. So my idea of masculinity was pretty much non-existent because I was raised predominantly by my mother. So my thing with the way in which I approach work is very much as a motherly male figure, right? Like I tend to be very warming and I tend to be understanding and I tend to be listen and I tend to care and I tend to hug and embrace in non-sexual ways, right? Because also I think that there's a misconception that anything that is physical between two men has to be sexual. And for me, it is more no, I am just lending you a hand. I am just here to show you my support, not only in words, but through action, right? Through touch, because we need that embrace. Even if it's just putting a hand on somebody's back and saying, man, I got you. That means more than sending a text or just saying it from 10 feet apart, right? Um, there is a, a degree of intimacy that people associate that is not sexual, but that they know is stemming from a place of care. And I think that um, I think that my growing up was both a blessing and a curse, right? Because I, uh, 
for most of my childhood, I resented my father for being absent and sort of discredited his efforts in Mexico, right? And praised my mom for so many things. And then now as I approach 30 years of age, I am thinking, well, shit, my dad had a different perception of care because for my dad, it was about providing. It was about having the opportunities for me. It was about giving me the best life I could possibly live without maybe telling me that he loved me because for him, those actions of care and provi providing were acts of love, right? Versus I wanted to hear him vocally say it. So now I had to go back with my research, right? Uh, and my self-reflections and think, where were moments in which my dad told me he loved me without telling me he loved me, right? If that makes sense. Um, so I've had to question a lot of my upbringing and find peace in the fact that maybe what I expect people to be like, that's not what they're going to be because they also hold their traumas and their histories. Let's take a few minutes to listen to Sergio describe his own experience wrestling with gender and sexual identity. When I began my PhD program, um, I was the only person that was not from the Midwest. Um, I was the only person that was coming from Texas. Most people were from Michigan, from Illinois. I believe there was one from Florida. But the, the way in which gender is constructed and policed on the border is very different. And the only way that I realized that is when I went to live to Michigan, and Ann Arbor in particularly, that is very liberal, um, in some sort of senses, and others, not so much, but it is much more progressive than the city that I'm currently in. Um, when I left over there and I started thinking about or started experiencing all these things, I said, hold up, this is, this is not our reality back home. Like, this is not the way of living that I'm used to back home. So I started questioning why, why is, is being a man so different in Ann Arbor than it is being in the border? And then when I came back home, there was this idea, and full disclosure, when I left to Michigan in 2016, I was not out. I came out um, seven months after moving to Michigan because of other things that were related to mental health. But... When I left, I, I felt like when I was in Michigan, I was one person. And then I came to Texas for vacation and I was like back to closeted me. So it just became too much having to navigate between one persona and a persona that I, the persona that I wanted to become was in Ann Arbor. And the persona that people knew me to be was whenever I came to Texas, right? Um, there was this constant back and forth that was very emotionally taxing. But when I first stepped into these, um, some classrooms, um, folks were like, you know, you, you, you don't sound gay. And that was one of the things, right? Um, because my voice maybe is not as elevated or as high pitched as other folks. So the way in which I was sound was being questioned. That's one thing. Um, another thing was the way in which I dress. So I am Mexican and Texan through and through. Like I wear boots, I wear cowboy hats, I wear cowboy belts. I wear shirts that are cowboy in nature. Like that is what I wear. And I actually took a pair of boots to Michigan that I would wear sometimes. So it was that, it was my behavior. It was how I sounded. And it was also that I was never carrying like a badge that said like LGBTQ pride or whatever. 
Um, so I was not an advocate of pride because I was not proud of myself, right? I was still in the closet when I had left. So it was very difficult for me to, to think about, shit, well, how, how am I supposed to be? Am I supposed to wear a pride flag everywhere I go? Um, am I supposed to start sounding more like a woman? Am I supposed to wear makeup? Am I supposed, you know, am I supposed to change how I dress in order to prove my allegiance and or just like my identity? Um, and that weighed me a lot because with the issue of straight passing calls also came white passing, right? So I'm a light-skinned Latino and I know that. Um, and white passing is something that was thrown out left and right, but I'm like, yo, I don't think that I have reaped benefits of whiteness in the sense of like, my name is very Mexican and my first language is Spanish and I grew up in Mexico and my father got deported. And there's a lot of these things that do not ascribe to whiteness, right? So what I had to do is I was put in a situation in which I was getting cornered by saying, you cannot claim this because you look like this. You cannot claim that because you look like that. And I became very shy to expressing myself because I felt like people were just attacking me and I did not know any other way of being, right? Because here it was never questioned. My masculinity was never questioned. My sexuality was never questioned. My gender or, my, or sorry, my race was never questioned. Um, it's homogenous, so it's mostly Mexican, Mexican-American folks here. But we all know that we come in all different colors, shapes, and sizes. We all know that masculinity fluctuates within the border. But we have a common understanding of what it is that we all ascribe to. And maybe that is we all wear cowboy boots, right? Which is just a stereotype. But it is all a cultural phenomenon. Um, so really what I had to do is I had to listen to what these folks were saying. And I need to understand why it was that they were painting me like that. So I, again, for me, it comes a lot to, I need to understand motive. Like what is your, your intention and what are your motivations for cataloging me like this? Well, a lot of these folks were women of color. A lot of these folks were more marginalized than I was and had negative experiences with men. Therefore, they would feel that my presence of masculinity wasn't attacked or was an oppressive state for them to be in. When in reality, I was like, I'm here to learn, you know, like, and if I say something stupid, I do apologize, but I say it because I want to learn. Um, or if I ask something stupid, I say it because I am curious in learning. Um, and what I had to do is honestly, not give two fucks about that. <laughs> You know, because what I realized is that they were getting in my head so much that they were preventing me from being my true authentic self. Because now I had to, I had to reshift in order to prove that I was something that I already was. But in order for them to find me acceptable, I felt like I had to do that. And it was too much because I was not ready to embark in that journey. And also I did not know how to embark in that journey. Um, what I ended up doing is I started being comfortable with who I was, right? Saying, well, I come from a conservative state, so what do you expect? I come from a conservative household, so what do you expect? And gayness is not one thing, and Latinidad is not this one thing, and being a man is not just this one thing. And if that is your perception of what being a man, being masculine, being gay, or being Latino is, 
then that shows more about how you are as a person than how I am. And that shows more about how your reality reflects onto my body, but that is not my reality, right? So what I really had to do is I had to equip myself with the knowledge of saying, your reality I respect, but I will not allow you to displace your reality onto my body because you're making my body uncomfortable in a way that I should not feel because it was not educational. It was in the mode to attack, right? So I needed to understand what were the uncomfortable levels that I was okay with. I'm uncomfortable if I'm uncomfortable in a learning situation, but if I'm uncomfortable in an attacking mode, I'm going to bust out my claws and claw back, right? Um, and I don't care what people might say because I'm going to stand up for myself, right? So I, what I had to do is I had to think, okay, again, and this is where the introspective, like, where do I come from and why do I find this behavior acceptable and why do I dress like this? And all these things, all these questions about gender happened once I left my hometown. So I really needed to think about, you know, what is the best way that I can, I'm not going to be offensive to them because I want to be respectful to them, but I, I do want them to also make them uncomfortable in a learning state. And a lot of it was having these difficult conversations about, hey, well, have you ever been to Texas? And they'd be like, no. And I said, well, let me tell you a little bit of where I'm from. And where I'm from, this is our way of life and this is our lifestyle. And we have no access to gay clubs and we have no access to gay spaces and we have no access to X, Y, and Z. And I brought them into my reality. So that had to do is really engage in conversations that were educational about where I come from and why I am the person that I am. Um, which required a, a lot of emotional labor. But I think that in the long run, it helped me because I understood that there was nothing wrong with who I was as a person. And there was nothing with, wrong with who, how I was in terms to the communities that I wanted to belong to and that I already belonged to. Um, and that was honestly the best thing I could do for my mental state. Wow, that's wonderful and fascinating. If you're curious and hearing more from Sergio, I'm going to put our entire interview up on Patreon so you can listen to it there. Um, he's also got a really fun Instagram account, and there's a link to that on the website. I hope you learned something from this interview, and um, I'd love to hear your comments. Thanks for listening.